The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 74, a contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up its mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy is reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O oh God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Okay, we're still in Deuteronomy chapter 1. This will be the last sermon before we get to chapter 2. It's Deuteronomy 1, 34 through 46. It's entitled, Many Days in Kadesh. It's our fifth Deuteronomy sermon. Deuteronomy 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. 
We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you spent there. Is anybody seeing Jesus in that? He's all over it, Jesus and Israel. For the people that are streaming online, and we got a couple people that have never been here before, we started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been going slowly and verse by verse methodically, and it's been about 10 years, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 1 now. We also did Ruth and uh, Jonah and Esther in between the larger books. But so you know what's going on, because you may be sitting here or watching, and you may say, well, I don't really understand what he's talking about. God is taking Israel, real human beings that really existed and really did the things that they have done, and he is using them as typology in what he is going to do when Jesus Christ comes. So when you see something about Israel disobeying the Lord and the Lord punishing them for 38 years in the wilderness, and then they're now ready to enter the promise, it's a picture of what happened to Israel. Israel rejected Jesus Christ. They went into the wilderness among the nations, and now he has got them back in the land, and they are being prepared for that wondrous day when they, as a people, will call on Jesus Christ collectively. Please understand, there's a difference between collective Israel and individual Jews. Any Jew can be a saved person by believing in Jesus Christ, but collectively, Israel is under covenant to come to their Lord, and until that happens, they are collectively under covenant punishment. That's why it says in the book of Hebrews that he says, come outside the camp. It's a picture of coming out of the collective and coming to Christ who died outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So this is a continuation of what we have been seeing and we will see throughout these sermons and even into crossing over the Jordan and into uh, the promised land in Joshua. All of these things are typologically looking to Christ. So if you feel a little out of sync with what's going on. You don't know what I'm talking about? Watch three or four sermons, and in a couple of weeks, you will say, I am getting this. I see these pictures. Or what? read this one three or four times, and you'll start to see these things coming through. Deuteronomy opened just where Numbers left off, right on the banks of the Jordan, opposite Jericho, while still in Moab. In relation to the prophetic events, which that pictures, it looks to Israel, the people, finally ready to enter into their long-withheld inheritance. Thus, it is a book which is perfectly suited for the day and age in which we live. The recounting of the events from Israel's previous time on the doorstep of entry is to remind them of what got them into the pickle that they were in. That comes down to one key thought, a lack of faith in what the Lord promised and in his provision for obtaining that promise. Israel, the people are again united and they are back in the land of Israel. But despite this, they have not entered into their rest. Only a fool would look at the world today and think that they had. Therefore, they are being prepared for entry into it, just as Israel was being prepared for entry into it with Moses' final words to them. But even though Moses' words are words of law, it is not the law which will allow them to enter that precious and blessed rest of God. Our text verse comes from Romans 9, it's verses 30 through 33. 
What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Today, as with the last passage we looked at, we are seeing a review of what occurred in Numbers chapter 14. Israel failed to have faith in the Lord, and Israel went about seeking to obtain their inheritance under their own power. This is a futile effort indeed, and yet it is a common theme found among many denominations. The question is, what thing must I do to be pleasing to God? Seventh-day Adventists say that you must observe the Sabbath, and they observe various dietary restrictions and so on. Hebrew Roots adherents go with the Sabbath and dietary restrictions, and they add in the feasts of the Lord and a host of other pick-and-choose laws from the Law of Moses. The Church of Christ mandates water baptism. Oh, but it has to be done in the Church of Christ. We could go on and on with the man-made laws and or pick-and-choose precepts from the Bible for numerous other cults and sects. But in the end, only one thing is needed. That one thing is so simple, so seemingly insignificant, that Paul calls it a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something that you don't even notice. You just trip right over it. All that God asks of you to be right with him is to accept his simple gospel of peace. Nothing more. Israel missed it, and it cost them greatly. Let us hold fast to this precious gospel, and let us never deviate from it. It is the central point of theology when it comes to the salvation of the human soul, and it is found right in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you. The first one is, he shall cause Israel to inherit it. It's verses 34 through 40. Verse 34, And the Lord heard the sound of your words, Ve'yishma Yehovah et kol divrechem, and heard Yehovah the voice of your words. It is an interesting phrase, which is only seen again in this manner in Deuteronomy 5, verse 28. As this is so, one should stop and look at why it is spoken this way. This verse is an obvious reference to Numbers 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. That was speaking of the faithless people who heard the report of the spies, failed to have trust in or fear of God, and who turned their hearts away from him and back toward Egypt. However, Deuteronomy 5, verse 28 is speaking of an entirely different account. There it says, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. This event was just after the giving of the Ten Commandments. At that time, the people said, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. One can see the complete contrast between the two accounts. 
In Exodus, the people had a fear of the Lord. They understood his power and majesty, and they asked Moses to be the one to stand between them and the Lord, knowing that his glory was too great for them as a people to interact with. Despite this, just a year later, the people had lifted up their voices and wept, fearing the minuscule inhabitants of Canaan more than the great and awesome Lord who led them. The pillar and the cloud were still there, right there with them. The manna came daily. The rock brought forth water for them. The promises had been given, and yet the people failed to simply believe and trust. Thus, Jehovah heard the voice of their words. Verse 34 continues, and was angry. Ve'yitzof and was angry. The word katsaf comes from a primitive root meaning to crack off. Thus it figuratively means to burst forth in a rage. The Lord was furious at them. They had spoken what was right concerning his majestic power while at Sinai, and yet from that time on, they had constantly needled him, rejecting his presence every step of the way. Now, while literally one step away from Canaan, they needled him again, failing to trust that same power which was able to part the Red Sea and the same power that spoke in thundering majesty from the top of Sinai and was able to uphold his promises for them to subdue the enemies which were like fleas before him in Canaan. Surely he was furious. Verse 34 continues, And took an oath, saying, And swore, saying, the word is Shabbat, coming from a primitive root signifying to be complete. It is used as a denominative from the word Shiva or seven. Thus, when swearing, a person is said to seven himself. In other words, it is as if he has made his declaration seven times. The Lord's word is its own oath. And so when he spoke, it was a firm and decided declaration that would certainly come to pass. Verse 35, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see. Most translations miss the poignant nature of the words. They are very direct. A literal translation would be, if shall see one of the men, the these, the generation, the evil, the this. A suitable paraphrase would be, surely not one of these men, this evil generation shall see. The entire body of people is collectively lumped together as one evil generation. Only later will exceptions be noted, thus demonstrating the horrendous nature of the collective body. Verse 35 continues, that good land, ha'aretz ha'tova, the land, the good. Whereas the people are one giant body of evil, the land which they are now to be denied is purposefully contrasted to them. They are the evil, it is the good. None of them shall partake of that which was set aside for them. Think of Jesus. They rejected Jesus. None of them shall see the promised inheritance because they failed to come to Jesus. One can quite clearly see Jesus' parable of the Great Supper in Luke 14 reflected here. When speaking of the kingdom, one of those which Jesus said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. In response, Jesus spoke a parable about a man who gave a great supper and invited many to join him. All of the people made excuses as to why they couldn't come to the banquet. In response, Jesus exclaimed, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The types and shadows of the past hauntingly called out for the people at Jesus' time to pay heed. The land was prepared for Israel, and later the kingdom was prepared for them. But they failed to accept the Lord's provision for the things. Verse 35 continues, Of which I swore to give to your fathers. Here the word shava or swear is used again. 
Thus, a contrast is set forth. The oath had been made, and thus it must come about. God promised that Israel would obtain the inheritance, didn't he? Even at the very end of Leviticus 26, with the promised blessings and curses, the very last thing he did in Leviticus 26 was to appeal to the covenant. I will remember my covenant with the people. They will inherit the land. Okay? However, Moses said in verse 34 that the Lord made an oath against these people. That must also come about. But the later oath cannot negate the previous oath. This is a point that must not be missed. Replacement theologians have missed it, and they said the church has replaced Israel. Incorrect. The oath was made, and it must be performed. The oath is made, and it will be performed. But what was previously spoken will surely come about. The land will come to Israel, and the kingdom will come to Israel. But there will be a delay in both. For now, the oath which Moses refers to is spoken in Numbers 14, 28, and 29. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. This is later referred to by the psalmist in Psalm 106. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe. They didn't have faith. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. It is also referred to in Psalm 95, a psalm which is then referred to and minutely analyzed in the book of Hebrews. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In Hebrews, the author, speaking to the collective body of Israel, refers to their having been denied entry, but that it would someday come to pass. But he also notes that those individuals who had believed in the Lord Jesus had, in fact, entered their rest. That's Hebrews 4, verse 3. Even before the cross, there was this separation of views about Jesus. This is reflected in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." There were those who feared the Romans, and there were those who believed. And at Moses' time, there were those who feared the Canaanites, and there were those who believed the Lord and his promises. That is reflected in what Moses will next say. Verse 36, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Here, as in Numbers 14, 24, Caleb is singled out, being named first and apart from Joshua. Moses uses a new word, zulah, to identify him. It signifies except or besides. Caleb, if you remember, means dog. In Numbers, he was identified as the Kenizzite. Though of the tribe of Judah, his Gentile ancestry was thus highlighted to make a picture. 
Dogs are unclean animals. With his name and his ancestry taken together, he forms a picture of the Gentile people who demonstrated faith in the Lord while the Jews collectively rejected him. His father's name, Yefuneh, or he will be beheld, anticipated the fact that Christ would be beheld by the Gentiles even when he was rejected by the Jews. Of Caleb in relation to the promise, it then says, verse 36 continues, he shall see it. Caleb, picturing the Gentile believer, is set in total contrast to those of verse 35. The entire congregation is an evil generation, but Caleb is set apart from them because of his belief and faith in the Lord. He is singled out first because he fits the typology of what would come during the Gentile-led church age. It is those who the Jews consider dogs, meaning Gentiles, that would inherit the lead role in this dispensation. While Israel was under punishment for not heeding the Lord, Caleb obtained the promise. Caleb is promised entry into Canaan. Gentile Christians are promised entrance into the heavenly kingdom. It must be remembered that Caleb remained in the wilderness for 40 years, but his time was one of promise leading to entry into Canaan, something which will now occur. Israel collectively retained the promise as well, as will be seen in the coming verses. The collective group, made up of individuals, was cursed, leading to their deaths. Understanding the typology leads to understanding what has happened and continues to happen, unfortunately, with Israel, even to this day. For individual Israelites, some bear the promise and some do not. For those who do, the time here is simply in anticipation of entering what God has promised. Caleb possessed that promise. All who trust in Christ do so as well. Verse 36 continues, And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked. Caleb anticipates the Gentiles who believed in Christ, but it was not just a group who believed and then that generation ended. Rather, the Gentiles followed fully after the Lord, and they assumed the lead role in the church age. One generation to the next, Each received the promise of inheriting the land on which their father walked. This was spoken of by Paul right at the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Paul then further explains this in Romans 11.25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. While Israel was set aside due to unbelief, the Gentiles were brought in and have continued filling the typology of Caleb. Before I go on, does everybody see how the Gentiles are finally starting to really fall away from Christ? Unlike any time in human history, and yet the Jews in Israel are starting to believe in Jesus. They said more Jews have converted in the past 19 years than in the past 1900 years. A rabbi said that recently. You can see what's happening in the world right now. Verse 36 continues, because he wholly followed the Lord. Ya'an asher mele achare Yehovah, because which he fully followed Yehovah. Though nobody translates it as such, this should be an independent clause, not a part of the quote of the Lord. The quote should end with, I am giving the land on which he walked, and then these words should be separate. The reason for this is that the words are a close repeat of Numbers 14, verse 24, where the Lord is speaking. There it said, Ve'male achare and has fully followed after. Here it says, Mile achare Yehovah, 
fully followed after Yehovah. It is now Moses repeating the thought that the Lord had spoken in the book of Numbers. And so he adds in the name of the Lord to show this, being certain of this, and not wanting to simply pass over it without really seeing if it is an independent clause or not, I asked Sergio, my friend in Israel, to tell me his thoughts. They are long, they are detailed, but I am going to include them in their entirety so that you can see how thorough he is in considering the word of God and thus how carefully and thoroughly we should evaluate it. Now remember, this is something that nobody even talks about. No translations address, no scholars comment on, but it bothered me. I said, this must be an independent clause. How can I determine that? Because I don't know the Hebrew that well. Go to Sergio. He evaluated it. This is what he evaluated. His words, the Hebrew text does not have quotation marks, so to be able to know where the quote begins and where it ends, one would use context, cantillation marks, or the space gaps in the ancient manuscripts. It seems like your proposition makes the most sense from a contextual perspective. However, to see if such interpretation is possible from a technical perspective, I went digging into the Qumran scrolls. You get his pun there? I'm digging the scrolls? Okay, there you go. The most ancient manuscripts we have of Deuteronomy are the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are over 70 fragments of the book of Deuteronomy, found in 11 different caves and dating back to the first century BC. However, Despite having such a vast number of partial fragments of the book of Deuteronomy, they are mostly copies that were discarded by the scribes because they had at least one small defect. And so we have all of these copies, but almost all of them are missing the first chapter. In my opinion, it is because in the first chapter, they must have still had great focus and attention to details. And so only a few mistakes were made as they were copying the first chapter. As a result, only a handful of scrolls were discarded. This isn't looking good for our quest, but the situation gets even tougher. There's only one scroll that has the verse that you are looking at for verse 36. This scroll is coded as 4Q35. 4 stands for the 4th Qumran cave, and 35 stands for the 35th manuscript that was found in the cave. The scroll that was found was there was in pretty bad shape as it dates back to the 1st century BC. So, we only have partial fragments of this chapter. See attached images. And he went searching and he got the images from the database at the Dead Sea Scroll Library and he sent them to me. After digging through 44 fragments, I was finally able to find verse 36. But, unfortunately, this fragment is incomplete. So we can't really see if there's a space gap. All this hard work and we're still left with a mystery. So, I moved on to the more modern manuscript in the Masoretic text, which dates back to the 9th century, to see if we can find any clues there, and voila! In the Masoretic text, the sentence, because he wholly followed the Lord, has a Hebrew cantillation mark. That means a mark where they sing, you know, have you ever heard them singing out the Hebrew? It's called cantillation. It has a cantillation mark called zekef gadol on the word because. This mark functions as a separator between two segments of a verse, so it appears that the Masoretic text possibly agrees with this interpretation. It is quite possible that the words, because he wholly followed the Lord, were not a part of the words which the Lord spoke, but a part of Moses 
explanation. End of Sergio's comments. I asked him one simple question and he went through hours to get me an answer. Hopefully, you can now partially appreciate how much work it can be to evaluate a single portion of a single sentence that not a single scholar or translation seemed to care about, but which I and Sergio were determined to see through for your better understanding of God's precious word. Caleb pursued the Lord and the Lord's ways step by step in faith. He simply trusted the Lord's promise and defended his position by saying, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He did not waver in his resolve, even when the rest of the people turned against the Lord. Verse 37, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Before we go on, does anybody remember what the Lord said to Moses and why he was forbidden from going into the land of promise? What caused that to happen? The water. He struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it. And now he's blaming the people. We'll evaluate it. I'll read it again. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes. He's the one that struck the rock. Even you shall not go in there. Verses 37 and 38 are stated here to relay why there needs to be a change in the leadership before the people can enter the promise. In it is a new word, anath, translated as angry. It comes from a primitive root signifying to breathe hard, and thus it signifies being enraged. At first, it seems highly curious that Moses would add this note in here. The people were sentenced to die in the wilderness based on their disbelief in Numbers 14. However, the event which brought about the downfall of Moses and Aaron didn't occur until Numbers chapter 20, where it was in the first month of either the third year of their travels or the first month of the 40th year. We logically defended why it was the third year at that time. If you want to know why, go back and watch the sermon. Regardless of that, though, it was a considerable time after the events of Numbers 14, either many man months or many years. And yet, Moses seems to place it in conjunction with the people's faithless turning from the Lord. Further, it was Moses' own fault that this punishment was laid upon him. He and Aaron were told to speak to the rock before the eyes of the people and water would flow out. But the word was disobeyed. Moses struck the rock twice and he failed to believe the Lord and hallow him in the eyes of the people. So why is Moses stating this in conjunction with the people's rebellion as if he is passing the buck to them concerning his own faults? It is because it was the fault of the people indirectly. The word Moses uses here, which is translated as for your sakes, is galal. It signifies on account of. It comes from the verb galal, which means to roll. Thus, it speaks of a circumstance as if rolled around. In other words, if the people had simply trusted the Lord, obeyed his word, and went into the land, the entire congregation would have been in Canaan, not at Kadesh. There would have been no need for Moses to lose his temper with them and strike the rock. But the circumstances rolled around, bringing him to the point where those events occurred. The fault was immediately his, but the blame still rested upon Israel because of what occurred at this time. This is why he includes this circumstance here right now. It is also seen in the words of Psalm 106. They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Just as the people could not enter except Caleb, so the leader could not enter. 
but the people would not be left without leadership. Joshua also demonstrated faith, and he too would enter, assuming the mantle of responsibility from Moses before that occurred. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. He is identified as the son of Nun, which means to propagate or increase. He pictures those faithful Jews who would receive the inheritance in Christ. Naming his father Nun shows that the Lord would propagate or increase his offspring. Moses, representing the law, would die outside of the promise. Joshua then anticipates faith in Christ, who would then lead the people into the promise. Through the death of the law comes entry into the inheritance pictured by Joshua. Does everybody understand that? The law cannot bring in the inheritance. If you are under law, you are not under grace. They're mutually exclusive. The picture of Moses dying outside of the land of promise had to happen. Verse 38 continues, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Strengthen, for he shall cause to inherit it Israel. One can see Jesus all over this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, that the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Moses sinned and had to die outside of the promise, but Joshua, or the Lord is salvation, will be strengthened by Moses, the law. In Christ's death under the law, the inheritance is obtained for those who die to the law through Christ. Verse 39, moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. It hasn't happened yet in human history, but it is being prepared right now. Israel is in the land. They are back there, and they are going to be brought under the new covenant. And when it happens, what we are reading right now in the book of Deuteronomy will happen in this point in human history. We are right there. The Lord continues the thought. The people were held accountable for their failure to believe, but another generation will be brought in. It's happened. And they will possess the inheritance. For Israel in the wilderness, he says that their children would do so. However, the typology calls for more than just little ones and children. The reason for this is that the sentence was on all 20 and above. Though the term no knowledge of good and evil is given as a general statement in contrast to the adults, it cannot actually be said that those 19 and younger have no knowledge of good and evil. That is an inherited knowledge of all people. It is the same term, tov vara, that goes back to the early Genesis account. Paul says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thus, in type, those who will enter are those who are not under law. In other words, in type, this speaks of those who have come to God through Christ and who are thus, as Paul says, not under law, but under grace. It is such a generation as this who will be given the inheritance and they will possess it. The typology is clearly evident. Only after the law has died can the promised inheritance be possessed, and that can only come through faith. For those who fail to believe, verse 40, but as for you, turn. And take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This is found in the second half of Numbers 14, verse 25. The people were warned that the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley which lay before them. It was a warning because the Lord had determined to not lead them into the land. Therefore, if they went, they would go alone and face the enemy alone. 
Instead, they were told to move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. As there are fingers of the Red Sea on both sides of Sinai, it could mean either direction. If the intent here is west, it would have been ironic that they were being told to go in the general direction that they had wanted to go when they rebelled, meaning back to Egypt. Either way, it was away from Canaan and toward the sea. But in another ironic turn, they rebelled against this command in order to do on their own what they had failed to do with the Lord leading them. It is an evil generation that has rejected me. They failed to simply take me at my word. They are as stubborn as the mule. How can it be if only they would pay heed to what they have heard? But their ears are closed and their eyes are made dim. They will not pay heed to the thing that I say. Who is the Lord? What care do we have for him? O Israel, why must it be this way? If you will just come to me, I would heal you. Here I am with my arms open wide. My hands and feet have been pierced through, and the spear has gone deep into my side. Come to me, O Israel, when you do, from then on, all things will go well. Our second thought today, from Seir to Hormah. It's verses 41 through 46. Verse 41, then you answered and said to me, Moses emphatically states his words to them, Vata'anu vatomeru elei. And you answered, and you said to me. He is showing that they were the initiators of the rebellion and that he had nothing to do with what occurred. Verse 41 continues, We have sinned against the Lord. Chatanu le Yehovah. We have sinned against Yehovah. It is a true statement. The people had sinned through cowardly unbelief that will next be complemented with the sin of disobedient presumption. Verse 41 continues, we will go up and fight. We will go up and we will fight. There is no inclusion of the Lord in these words. To them, it is a battle that they alone will fight and prove themselves worthy of claiming the promise. Do you remember the prophecy update when I said people are trying to earn the inheritance through obedience to the law of Moses? That's what's being pictured right here. It is a classic picture of those who attempt to earn salvation and thus heaven through their own efforts. This is especially so for those who do so under the guise of obedience to the law of Moses. They rejected God's offer of Christ, and then they fall back on the commands of the law in an attempt to prove their own merit. If you want to see where that's recorded, Wait, we're going to be in the Thursday night Bible studies in about two weeks in the book of Galatians, and that is where that is perfectly seen. This is exactingly seen in his next words. Verse 41 continues, just as the Lord our God commanded us. No, the land is an inheritance. An inheritance cannot be earned. Further, the Lord consistently said to the people that he would give them the land. It is he who would lead the battles. He never commanded them to fight apart from his presence. What did Jesus Christ do when he came here? He came under the law. He lived out the law. He did the fight so that we don't have to. He died on the cross. It says the, the law is nailed to the cross in Colossians 2 verse 14. The symbolism is that Christ died on the cross. The law of Moses died. These people are trying to earn their entry into heaven. And people today are trying to earn God's favor through obedience to the law of Moses, which is annulled in him. Verse 41 continues. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. 
Here is a word found only here in scripture, hun. It signifies to be easy. Rather than you were ready to go up, it should say something akin to, and you thought it would be easy to go up. This is certain because of what will come in the next verse, but it is also evident from the typology. People who pursue the law think it is easy to earn God's favor through the law. They look at their own actions with their own weapons of war as the assured ticket to obtaining the promise. This is exactingly taught by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Only through the Lord and the weapons he has provided can man stand in the battle, and only through him can man prevail. For Israel, their actions provided us with these typological truths. Verse 42, And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. This verse corresponds directly to Numbers 14, verse 42. The Lord would not go with them into the battle. If the Lord was among them, their victory in battle would be guaranteed. Without him, their own defeat was certain. Such is true with salvation. With the Lord, heaven is guaranteed. But without him, only death and destruction await. Verse 43, so I spoke to you, yet you would not listen. Moses conveyed the word of the Lord to the people. It is the sin of willful disobedience. The Lord spoke, Moses conveyed the word, and the people ignored the word. It is just what Paul speaks of in Galatians and elsewhere. He rebuked those of the circumcision for attempting to merit God's favor through the law, but they refused to listen. Verse 43 continues, but rebelled against the command of the Lord. Here, as in verse 26, it says, Vatamru et pi Yehovah, and rebelled against the mouth of Yehovah. The Lord spoke forth his word, and yet the people rebelled against it. However, as in verse 26, the word is mara, or rebelled. The word mara comes from a root meaning to make bitter. Thus, we can get the mental picture of you brought a state of bitterness to the mouth of the Lord. That is then highlighted by the next clause. Verse 43 continues, and presumptuously went up into the mountain. The word translated as presumptuously is zud. It signifies to boil or seethe. It's a word where the word matches the sound. Zud, zud, zud. Think of boiling, okay? The people didn't just bitterly rebel, but they did so in a boil. One can almost see a pot of bitter herbs being brought to a boil, which is then presented to the Lord. The taste would be nauseous and revolting. This is exactly the type of attitude those who pursue the law bring to God's presence. It is precisely what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8, concerning those who attempt to walk according to the flesh, meaning who use the law as a means of justification. Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 44, and the Amorites who dwell in that mountain came out against you. The word says the Amorite. It is speaking of the people group as a whole. In Numbers 14, however, it said, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them. Here, the general term for all of the dwellers of Canaan is used. 
Amorite comes from Amar, meaning to utter or to say. Therefore, the name signifies being spoken of and thus renowned. Next, interestingly, it says, verse 44 going on, and chased you as bees do. Here, the Devorah, or bee, is introduced. It is the same as the name Deborah. The word comes from the verb davar, meaning to speak, and it is the root of the noun speech or word. Just as words are spoken in an orderly motion, so are the movement of bees. What is interesting is that the word Amorite comes from to utter or to say, and bee comes from to speak. The picture should be clear. The Lord is using this to form a picture of his word. For example, bees produce honey, something that is equated to the words of the Lord. Those who convey the word and the word itself speak against those who attempt to find justification for themselves apart from the Lord. The result of such is, verse 44 continues, and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. This is also something not recorded in Numbers 14. There it says, and drove them back as far as Hormah. Seir was never mentioned. The word seir comes from se'ar, or hair, which signifies awareness in the Bible. When you see hair in the Bible, think of awareness, and you will have the right picture. Man is a sentient being. He has awareness, in particular, an awareness of sin due to the law. Horma, or harema, comes from the word haram. It means to make accursed, or utterly destroy. Thus, it means destruction. Again, the picture follows logically. Man with an awareness of sin, but who attempts to be justified apart from the righteousness of Christ is accursed and is to be destroyed. That's Galatians chapter 1, 6, and 8, if you want to go check that out. Paul speaks of this, oh, I'm going to quote it right now. Paul speaks of this in Galatians 1 in regard to those who attempt to pervert the gospel of Christ, especially by reinserting the law. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The name of this place here, Horema, Harema in Hebrew, is exactly what Paul is referring to. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And the entire book of Galatians is speaking about reintroducing the law of Moses, circumcision, etc., in order to be pleasing to God. It is defacing the cross of Christ and the glory which he displayed there. Verse 45, then you returned in wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. The people of Israel rejected the Lord's promise and provision concerning entrance into Canaan, and they were banished to the wilderness. In this they wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention. Likewise, and sadly, the people of Israel rejected the Lord's promise and provision concerning entry into his promised rest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. They were banished among the nations and have wept consistently for a return to the promise. For 2,000 years, the proclamation year by year by year at the Passover has been next year in Jerusalem. But the Lord would not listen to their voice, nor would he give ear to them. The pattern was given so that the people would see, open their eyes and their hearts to Christ and be healed. But the healing would not come. Verse 46, so you remained in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you spent there. Here is a statement of fact which is made. The people of Israel remained in Kadesh many days. The amount of speculation on how long they were in Kadesh is long, and the commentaries vary immensely. 
But what needs to be understood is that Kadesh is where the spies went out from and where they returned to. It is also the last place that Israel was before beginning their trek back towards Canaan. Despite all the places that they are recorded as having trekked to during their time in the wilderness, the location of Kadesh is thus given to sum up the entire period of living in the wilderness. Here it comes, and this is important for you to remember. The meaning of Kadesh is simply holy. As much as being a central point of reference for all of their time in the wilderness, then it is also given to make a theological point concerning Israel. Despite being under punishment, despite being banned from entry into the promise, and despite the death of all of the people who rebelled, Israel was still set apart as holy. The Lord made a covenant with Israel, and their faithlessness in no way negates his faithfulness. I want you to understand this because you are saved if you believe in Jesus Christ. And if he breaks that promise and says you're not saved because of something you have done, then he has actually broken the promise because it's called a guarantee in the book of Ephesians. If God ever rejects Israel as a people, I'm talking about the collective, your salvation is in question because he will break the promise with you, and that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible keeps his covenant despite our faithlessness. He is a wonderful God, and if you have called on Jesus Christ and are saved, you will always be saved. You will stand before him for judgment at the Bema seat, and you will be judged for reward and for loss, but never for your salvation. Condemnation is done. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though, faithful and true. Though they were in and of themselves unholy, the Lord maintained them as holy for his own sovereign redemptive purposes. Their trek back to Canaan, as we previously saw, and as we will see again in the review of their historical events in the chapters to come, anticipates their trek back to the Lord and to being brought into the covenant promises found in Jesus Christ. The lesson of what we have seen for Israel and for us is that we cannot come to God apart from the merits which are found in Jesus Christ. No obtaining of the inheritance is to be found in the law of Moses or in our futile attempts to be justified under that law through our own efforts. This is the purpose of the story that we have seen and it is a truth which continues on throughout all of the Old Testament and even into the New God has presented us with his final, full, and finished plan of salvation. He did not hang on the cross and say, it is almost finished, and then die. He said, it is finished. And it is one which is solely dependent on the merits of Jesus Christ and him alone for our justification before him. Let us hold fast to this truth and let us rest in the grace of God which comes through him. I said that we're going to see this all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. I'm not going to live long enough to get through all of the Old Testament at the rate we're going. I said years ago that if I can make it to the book of Isaiah, I'll be happy. I don't think we're going to get even close to that. But all the way through the Old Testament, there is a truth. I mentioned it in last week's sermon. There's a truth about the people of Israel. What is that truth? All of the people of Israel before the coming of Christ are dead. Every one of them. Not one of them received the inheritance. They are all dead. If they had worked out the law of Moses, it says in Leviticus 18.5, the man who does these things will live by them. He will live. 
to me to live means to not die and yet every single one of them except elijah who is taken to heaven for a special purpose which will be revealed in a seven-year tribulation period every one of them died none of them did the things of the law not one of them and that's what the rest of the Bible is going to show us. Not only is it going to show us hints of the coming Christ, but it's going to show us the failings of the people of Israel. This one came and he was a good guy. He was a great king. He slew Goliath, but he died because he had sinned before the Lord. And his son, Solomon, the wisest man ever to live, fell away. He went after all the women and the gods of the lands and he died. And his son, Rehoboam, guess what? He was born of a Ammonite. An Ammonite. Know what Ammon is? Ammon is one of the two daughters of Lot, had a son and called him Ben-Ami. The other one was Moab, right? Remember the, that story? Two women went into the cave and they slept with their father because they wanted to preserve the seed. They weren't talking about preserving their lineage. They were talking about bringing in the Messiah. And both of them lead to the Messiah. Moabites came to Ruth. And she is in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And then Rechavam, the son of Solomon, was born of an Ammonite. And he leads right down to Jesus Christ. They preserved the seed. They were women of faith. They weren't what people accused them of. They were looking for the Messiah. And they thought they were the only people left on the planet. They were out in the middle of nowhere. And they had seen the world that they knew destroyed. The Bible is a book of faith. It's not a book of accusing people. It's a book that says, you can't do it, but I will do it for you. And Jesus Christ came under that same law, and he lived out that law perfectly. And he gave up his life on the cross of Calvary for you. If there was one person on this whole planet, he would do it for that one person. That's how precious the human soul is. Please, if you've never called on Jesus by simple faith, the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Let me read it to you. I could quote it, but I'll get two words wrong, and I don't want to get one wrong. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. You're saying he died for my sins. It means what? You're a sinner. You're acknowledging that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. He was really dead, not just dead for a minute. He really died and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, meaning he had no sin because the wages of sin is death. But praise God, he came out of the grave. So he not only died in fulfillment of the law, he died for your sins, which is allowed under the law of Moses, substitution. And he took away your sin into the grave and it's gone forever. Not two ever, not three ever, but forever. It is gone because we serve the greatest of all beings, the creator who sent his son to die. Please call on Jesus Christ. Next week is, I got a closing verse for you first, Galatians 6. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Guess what? Circumcision is mandated in the book of Leviticus under the law of Moses. And he says that avails nothing. He even says it in 2 Corinthians 7 or 2, right there. He says it's part of the law of Moses. If it's a part of the law of Moses, and he says that the law is set aside in Christ, and he's speaking about the law of Moses. Next week is Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 12. It's been a long walk, and the times have been rough. It's entitled, You Have Skirted This Mountain Long Enough. That'll be our sixth Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But... 
He also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem for you, but before I do, I've got a Maserati to give away to somebody. I want you to finish this verse. I do not set aside the grace of God for if... Righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Thank you. Nobody gets a Maserati this week. That's okay. I understand. When I sit there and a the pastor used to ask me a question or he'd ask the whole congregation, everybody would sit there, I'd sit there with my brain frozen because it's hard to answer. And especially if I'm wrong, I'm going to look stupid. And see, so just. But anyway, nobody gets a Maserati this week, so I'm going to take it. And, gas is cheap, isn't it? $1.79? I could take this all the way to Tampa and back at full speed and spend a couple bucks. Okay, we got a poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's entitled, Many Days in Kadesh. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give your fathers, so to you I am relaying. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his children, so stands my word, I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, Even you shall not go in there, so to you I submit. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims when you disbelieved and quit, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight. Just as the Lord our God commanded us, we will show those folks our strength and might. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. The Lord's word you did ignore. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies, yes, in their very sight. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the mountain, not paying heed to his word. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do, and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained many days in Kadesh, is where, according to the days that you spent there. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story of redemption. How much you love the people of Israel, despite their faithlessness, despite their rebellion, despite even now 2,000 years failing to call on your precious son, our Lord, and yet you have kept your covenant promises with them, and you have deposited them back where they are going to do that. Your word even says so, right out of his mouth, right out of his mouth, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you would not allow me. I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say... 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it will be because our Lord has spoken. Israel will be redeemed and may that day be soon. And until then, help us to get this word out to every person that needs to hear it and that they can find salvation in the wonderful arms of our loving Savior, Jesus. May it be so and may we be responsible in this duty to your glory. Amen.